Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are going to be, some men are coming up the aisles right now and they've got lots of Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. And, and it'll be marked to the passage we're studying today. And that way you can hear the Word, but look at it with your own eyes as well. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, God wants everybody to own a Bible and know the Bible. So that Bible's a gift from the Lord to you today. And uh, take it home and make a friend of it. And uh, God will do great things in your life through that. Three verses here this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word and the revelation that it is of yourself and of your Son. And we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit right now and give us a supernatural ability to just reflect upon how good you've been to us in him, what his resurrection means to us, and so fall upon us in a wonderful way and meet with us now as we study your word, we ask, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In that classic passage concerning the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that constitutes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul spoke of the many, many eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. He made mention of the witness of the prophetic scriptures uh, to his resurrection. The Apostle Peter being a witness of Jesus' resurrection. He mentions the twelve, speaking of the apostles, minus Thomas, when Jesus appeared to them on that Sunday evening, Thomas being absent. And then he mentions over 500 individuals where somehow in some event that's not recorded for us in Scripture, Jesus appeared to them, and, uh, and Paul said, Most of them are still alive, overwhelming majority still alive as witnesses to go and ask concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And he made mention of James and then all of the apostles. uh, The Sunday after he uh, met with the apostles and Thomas then being present to become a witness of Jesus' resurrection uh, as well. And then Paul mentioned himself. But here in this passage in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter essentially declares every Christian to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the basis of three things. By virtue of the miracle of our spiritual birth, by virtue of the fact that we possess a living hope, and by virtue of our perseverance, the fact that as Christians 
We just keep on keeping on, as the old saying goes, in this Christian life in the face of all obstacles. From a physical, spiritual, and eternal perspective, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in all of human history. And I think about how awesome it is, is what Peter is revealing here, and he has a sense of of all related to what he's revealing here, is that we have a privilege as Christians for our lives to be a personal witness to the three greatest events in human history, and that is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I want us to notice first in verse 3 that our lives are a witness to Jesus' resurrection by virtue of our spiritual birth. And Peter declares that as Christians we've been uh, begotten again, he says, to a living hope. And that word begotten again, it literally means to be born again. And of course, Jesus was the first one to ever use the term. And Peter's phrase here, I think, is intended to remind us of Jesus' exchange with the Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus that's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 3. Let me read a portion of that to you. And Jesus answered and said to him, that is to Nicodemus, a religious leader of the Jews, he said, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's trying to, he's trying to figure it out. And Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Being born again does not refer to a second physical birth that needs to occur for us to have a relationship with God. It refers to a spiritual birth. In order for a person to enter into the kingdom of God, in order for a person to have a personal relationship with God and then to enter into heaven later, one has to not only be born physically, but we have to also be born of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus declares that each of us has been born of the flesh. Every one of us in this room has experienced a physical birth. We've been born of water. Water is the uh, fluid of the physical birth. Once a woman's water breaks, a physical birth soon follows. But Jesus declares that there's a spiritual birth that is just as real as the physical birth in terms of experiencing it. And it is God and His Holy Spirit coming into a human life and with Him, the Holy Spirit bringing into our lives a capacity to have a relationship with God. And the spiritual birth is different from the physical one in that you cannot see it with your own eyes. But it's no less real because of that. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, He likened this spiritual birth 
to the wind blowing through the trees. And I'm inclined to believe that when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about this spiritual birth, that a wind was actually blowing through the trees in the meeting place that they were in. And Jesus uses that as an illustration for the spiritual uh, birth. When a tree blow, a wind, a breeze blows through a tree, you can't see the wind. Uh, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it goes after it's blown through the tree. And uh, so how do you know that it exists? How do you know that the wind is real? By the sound that it makes as it blows through the tree, by the effect that it has upon the tree. In the same way, when a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, you don't actually see the Holy Spirit come into their lives with a naked eye, but you know that He's entered into their life because of the effect that He has upon that person's life, the changes that He brings to their life. I have a a very dear friend who is a Christian. In fact, he was an elder in the church that I got going with the Lord with, and he led my wife to the Lord uh, over the phone uh, many, many years ago now. And uh, this friend of mine, one of the sweetest guys you could ever meet, never known uh, a, a bad word to come out of his mouth, nothing off color, nothing coarse. I've never or ever heard him say anything bad about another person. And yet he declared concerning himself before he became a Christian, he said, I was the biggest cusser this side of the Mississippi River. And I looked at him and I couldn't believe it that that could be the case concerning him. Yet the Holy Spirit coming into his life had that kind of an effect on his life. The Holy Spirit changed him. And every single one of us as Christians could tell a similar story. We were such and such a kind of person in our speaking, in our thinking, in our doing. And then when the Holy Spirit came into our lives, he changed us. We didn't, it wasn't mind over matter, it wasn't psychosomatic, it wasn't some kind of a thing that we uh, did on our own. His entrance into our lives became immediately obvious to ourselves and others by the godly changes that He began to make in our lives. And because this change has occurred in uncountable millions and millions and millions of lives in human history and around the world today. From the perspective of heaven, it is as great a folly for the world to deny the reality of this work of the Holy Spirit as it would be to deny the very existence of wind. We don't know everything about this spiritual birth, but we know one thing for sure that it produces change. And Jesus was very keen to emphasize this to uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus asked Jesus, well, then how can uh, a person experience this spiritual birth? And Jesus' response to that question has become the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. And it was in response to that question that Jesus declared, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This spiritual birth occurs when a person looks to God and says, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life, and I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent your Son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, and that he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. And so I put my trust in him, his death upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection as the Savior that pleases you. That is the salvation that pleases you. And I give you my life. And the moment a person does that, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you're born again by the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly how it occurs. And it isn't some religious kind of blah, blah, blah in a world that is full of blah, blah, blah. It is a very real spiritual birth that provides us with the forgiveness of sins, but also then it produces a very real change within our lives. How many of you, for instance, in this room, just raise your hand in a moment, how many of you have experienced exactly the change that I'm talking about by the Holy Spirit when the Lord came into your life? Up high, raise your hands if he's done that. See, it's no secret because it wasn't just Nicodemus that would experience it or Peter would experience it. It is the life experience of every single Christian. And as a result, you are a living witness. You are a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other explanation for the quality of the life that we live than the fact that He is alive and He is living inside of us. Jesus declared this, and listen carefully if you don't mind. He said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. And He's speaking of the Holy Spirit that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And at that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. In what way? By coming into our lives once we're born again. This spiritual birth is Jesus living inside of us. Again, a single verse from that passage. Jesus said, At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Paul wrote about all of this in writing to the Ephesians. And he said in chapter 4 of that book, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. From whom... The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share 
causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus the only explanation for the miracle that's occurred in each of our lives, but He is the only explanation for the body of Christ in the world as a whole, that He keeps all of us united, that He directs us, and that He uses us to advance His kingdom in the world. Later in his second epistle, Peter wrote, Grace and peace be multiplied to you, and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. When Peter talks about the knowledge of him, the knowledge of Jesus, the Greek word that he uses for knowledge there refers to a knowledge that comes by experience. In other words, because of this spiritual birth, we are able to know Jesus personally. We are able to know him experientially. We have a relationship with him. And all of this is why the constant onslaught of our culture against the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the culture's hostility to God, to faith, to the Bible, its very obvious and determined effort to undermine the faith of every Christian every single day, and the attempt to keep anyone and everyone from seriously considering the life of Jesus, his teaching, the implications of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and to reject these things, not on the basis of some scholarly effort. The people who investigate the life and the claims of Christ on a scholarly level with an open mind have historically ended up becoming Christians. But they try to push people away from these things through the most powerful and influential weapon available when you don't have the truth at your disposal. Truth is the most powerful weapon, and that is through the use of ridicule and intimidation. I think in terms of the ridiculing of those who put their trust in Christ today and how often the world will do that by wheeling out one brainiac after another who declares that only an idiot would believe this uh, kind of thing and the only reason uh, people do is because they're not as smart as these smart men and women who denounce all of it because we could just take it from them that if we were as smart as they were then we wouldn't believe these kind of things. And this kind of thing is foisted on the culture on a regular basis. You have quotes, for instance, by Stephen Hawking that are of this sort, where he declares, God is the name people give to the reason we're here. But I think that that reason is the laws of physics rather than someone with whom one can have a personal relationship, an impersonal God. He is quoted elsewhere as having said, I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. Uh, No one created the universe. No one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization that there probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that I am extremely grateful. Nietzsche said, 
in a similar kind of quote. He said, in Christianity, neither morality nor religion come into contact. Uh, neither morality, uh, in Christianity, neither morality nor religion come into contact with reality at any uh, point. The problem with this kind of thing, this kind of a, a scornful a, a attack and, and a, a ridiculing attack upon uh, Christianity and a faith in Christ is that very often people will listen to those kind of things and say, wow, if a man as smart as Hawking or Hitchens or Nietzsche doesn't believe it, then that must be the conclusion that I would come to about all of this if I was as smart as they are, and so I won't bother investigating any of it myself. I'll just take their conclusion to be my conclusion and put the whole thing to rest. And then there are the theories of people that they come up with in order to deny the resurrection of Jesus and in order to deny and, and undermine the Christian faith. For instance, that Jesus never really died on the cross, that he actually swooned on the cross. And there, as he was taken off of the cross and then laid ultimately in this tomb, in this cave, as his body was laid on the coolness of the, the stone at the base of the cave, that he regained consciousness, but had never died. Uh, never mind the fact that the experts in execution, Roman soldiers, came up to Jesus upon the cross after his death and thrust a spear up under his rib cage in order to pierce both the pericardium and the heart. They didn't need to do it twice. They only needed to do it once, and the water and the blood came forth because they knew how to kill people. That that was their job, being a soldier in the praetorium uh, at that particular time. But why is it that Christians, by the uncountable millions, both historically and currently, remain completely unmoved by the ridicule and the intimidation and the persecution? Why do they just quietly continue on in their faith in an environment like the one that we have in the United States of America that is literally ablaze with opposition to the faith and intimidation and ridicule and scorn? And the reason that they do is because we have a witness to Jesus' resurrection that is greater than all of the opposition, all of the ridicule, all of the persecution, all of the scorn of that historical fact that the whole world could heap up together in a thousand years. We know from experience that Christ is alive. We know that He is resurrected because the living Christ lives in us. We know that there is no other explanation for the spiritual and the emotional and the mental and the physical quality of our lives other than the fact that He is risen from the dead as He declared that He would and that He is now living His life inside of us as He promised. We know in the face of all of the scorn and the ridicule and the unbelief, we know and we alone know what it is to sense God's pleasure within us as we worship Him in spirit and in truth. We know what it is to open a Bible, a book that was as close to us 
as incomprehensible to us as it ever was to any unbeliever, and then have the Holy Spirit take that book and make it the most important book in our life, and indeed to make our time in it on a daily basis more important to us than our daily bread. We know what it is to have the Holy Spirit cause us and prompt us to lift our hands in praise to the Lord as we worship Him. We know what it's like to hear the Holy Spirit bear witness to us in our heart, to add His Amen to the truth of the teaching of His Word, to the preaching of the Gospel. We know what it's like to see God answer our prayers. We know what it's like to receive His wisdom and His revelation concerning a decision that we're needing to make, a situation that we find ourselves in. We know, we know, we know, we know, and we know experientially. They're too late with their ridicule and intimidation because we know God personally. I remember an old song from my youth, and it captures all of this perfectly, and it resonated with me then. And you could not have had a more spiritually dull junior higher than I was. But even this had life for me, and it's become more precious to me the older I get. And it's the old hymn he lives. And the first stanza goes like this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living. Whatever men may say, say, I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. All of our lives as Christians are a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Second, our lives are a witness to Jesus' resurrection by virtue of the fact that we possess a living hope. You can't live in this world without hope. Every single person who's still alive in this world today is, is a person who has some semblance of hope that exists in their life. You lose hope, something bad happens to you in this life. You need hope to survive. And so everybody has hope. It isn't a matter of whether every living in this person in this world lives their lives buoyed or kept afloat by some hope. The only question is, What is our hope? And then, is that hope worthy of our trust? And it's very important to recognize in this passage in 1 Peter that Peter's not talking about uh, hope in general in the passage, but he's talking about a very, very specific hope. He's talking about hope in a very, very specific sense. He's speaking about a hope that can not only withstand all of life and all that life can dish out against us, all that life can throw at us, but a hope that can face the reality of death and face it with boldness, face it calmly, face it confidently, a hope that has an answer for death, a hope that has a victory over death, 
And that's why he calls this hope that we've been born again into a living hope. It is a hope that does not wilt at the moment of death. It doesn't wilt at the subject of death. It doesn't wilt in the face of death. And Jesus declared very much the same thing when one day a group of religious leaders came to him. They were scribes and Pharisees. And they asked him, they said, Rabbi, Master, show us a sign. Why did they want a sign? They wanted a sign from him as some great miracle, as that would be the definitive sign that Jesus could give to them that would prove to them his claims to be the Son of God, to be Messiah, to be the Savior of the world. Now, they didn't need any more signs than the signs they already had. By the time they asked Jesus of this miracle, the country of Israel from north to south to east to west was filled with signs that testified to the fact that Jesus was and is the Son of God and was and is the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. The lame were walking, the blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, the dead had been raised up from the dead, the lepers cleansed of their leprosy from one end of the country to the other. But Jesus, out of his love and in order to make this very point that Peter is making, conceded to one more sign, but one more sign. And he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What sign did Jesus give them in saying that? It was speaking of his resurrection, the sign of his death, his burial, but his resurrection. That is, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so too Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights only. Resurrection. That he would rise up out of that grave and come and manifest that resurrection to the whole world. And one of the things that Jesus was communicating through all of this and through this teaching And not only to the religious leaders of that day, but to us in this room today. And that is don't trust in any savior or God or guru or philosophy or person or place or thing with your eternity who has not also conquered death. And there's no shortage of people who have an ability to talk. We are a talking country, and here I am talking when I don't want to hear another person talk for the rest of my life, unless it's things to do with the Lord. But there's so many talkers who can wax eloquent about how we ought to live here and speculate eloquently about life after this life and all kinds of things and the talking and that goes on about anything and everything, life, death, eternity, everlasting life. But if they haven't conquered death, they're not to be trusted. And Jesus not only spoke authoritatively about life and death, but then he proceeded to demonstrate his authority over death through his resurrection. And the only reason there is a living hope in existence 
in the world today is because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That awesome demonstration of his authority over death. And the reason that he can give everlasting life to us is because he has defeated death. And he has the capacity to not only have conquered death for himself, but then to share that victory over death with us as we come to know him. And the reason that we as Christians possess a living hope in the face of both life and death is because Jesus' demonstration of his authority over death through his resurrection and then his promise that his victory is now ours. You remember in John chapter 11 where um, Jesus is coming uh, to Bethany, a friend of his by the name of Lazarus had died in the city. Martha comes to Jesus before he gets into the actual city itself. And if only you had come here earlier, then my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, he will rise again. She said, yes, I know he will rise again at the, in the resurrection at the end of the age. And then Jesus spoke to Martha and said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then for each of us in this room, here's what Jesus speaks to us. And he who lives, that's you and me, alive right now. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said to Martha. At one of our Good Friday services here a couple days ago, I talked with a Christian sister by the name of Marilyn, her and her husband, used to attend the church, used to sit right over here and uh, all the time, all the time, the fixtures, it was wonderful. Marilyn's husband, by the name of Sonny, a number of years ago, he went to heaven, he went home to heaven. And each um, Good Friday, most Good Fridays, Marilyn is here and she makes a point to stop and say hi to me and I always appreciate it. And this last Friday was the same, and so we started to talk and get caught up a little bit on what's going on and how are you doing, and you know how these conversations are. You have them all the time yourself, and asked, how are the kids doing, and she told me, and then got talking a little bit, and the conversation rolled over to the fact that Sonny is in heaven, and, and then we start, I talked to her, and she was talking with me and just talking about the fact that one day we're going to be there uh, with him. And not one ounce of pie in the sky, or I hope, or maybe, or I sure hope this is all true, but this calm, steady, absolute confidence and assurance that as sure as Sonny Prescott is in heaven this morning, that one day she and I are going to be in that very same heaven. And why do we possess that? Because the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives a living hope and to stand and talk with her as a Christian or with any other Christian about heaven and the reality of heaven and talk about it as being as true a reality in our future as heading to Applebee's after the service or whatever it might be, the mall, something that we're planning to do and not as some, something that is truly amazing and that it's going to happen 
but there's no doubt, again, speaking of it so calmly and with such assurance, and that's the assurance that the Holy Spirit has brought uh, into our lives. Not the hope that one day we might get there, perhaps, or I hope all of this is true, but because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and our spiritual birth, there is that quiet, living confidence that heaven is our home and we are headed there. And it is something deep in our spirits that is there because of the risen Christ. Why do we possess this living hope? Because a living and resurrected Jesus has brought it into our lives. Now finally in verse 5, a further witness of our, that our lives are to the resurrection of Jesus is the fact that we are kept by the power of God, Peter says, through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, as a result of our faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, God the Father then affirms that our faith is well-placed by then committing to protect our faith by His power through every trial we will face in this life between here in heaven, every temptation we will face in this earth between here and heaven, every bit of spiritual warfare that we will face in this life between the moment of our spiritual birth and our arrival in heaven. He personally assures us of our safe arrival in heaven one day. And our perseverance in the Christian life against all odds, not just what the world tries to do, against our walk with the Lord, but what we have to fight against in terms of the devil and the spiritual warfare against who we are and what we are, and in the internal fight that goes on all the time with the old man and the fallen nature, who we are from Adam and Eve, our perseverance in the Christian life against all odds, our continuance in the Christian faith against all oppositions occurs because both God the Father and Jesus are united together in their commitment to us in this regard, that one day they are going to deliver us safely into the glory of heaven. They will keep us in this life until we arrive there. It is the only explanation for the 35 years of my Christian life. They have supplied me with the will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure. They've given me a desire to live this life and then given me the power to live this life against all oppositions and against all odds. And God has done the same thing in your life as a Christian. And it's a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. I am not, do not stand before you as a Christian, not as a pastor. I don't stand before you as a Christian after being a Christian for 35 years because I have some kind of innate determination and ability and self-discipline and strength and stick-to-itiveness and a way of thinking positively. I stand before you as a Christian after 35 years 
because of my faith in Jesus Christ, the Father has come alongside me and say, because of that faith in my risen Son, I'm going to protect your faith through every obstacle you face in this life and take you into glory. And the same thing is true of you. I would not have survived my first trial apart from the, this witness of Jesus' resurrection in my life. I wouldn't have survived my first attack of the enemy, my first hath God really said, and the casting of doubts upon my faith that then forced me to turn to the Word of God to find an answer to these temptations. I wouldn't have survived my first temptation if all of this was something that we just believed on in our heads and then we were forced to live out in our own strength, that there was no supernatural to the Christian life. I wouldn't have survived a day as a new Christian going against the considerable stream in the world, going in the other direction of the world and the flesh and the devil. And yet here I am this morning. I am a miracle before your eyes this morning. You don't know me. You know facts about me that I let out in the sermons here and there. I don't know most of you. I wish I did. I wish I did. But I know what a miracle I am. And you don't need to know all I know for you to know that I'm a miracle. You just need to know a little bit. Well, wait a second. If you've been here two weeks listening to me, you know I'm a miracle. So we'll get off this point right now. But I know what a miracle I am. I know there's no other explanation for the life that I'm living and the perseverance of my faith apart from the fact that Jesus is risen and he is living in me. And again, I know the same thing is true about you. And Peter isn't the only one to speak of this keeping power of God. Jude wrote in his... Uh, short epistle now unto him that is God who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said being confident of this very thing that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus Jesus himself declared in John chapter 10 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Both Father and Son are united together in providing us the perseverance that we need, the keep on keeping on that is needed in this life to one day deliver us into the glory of heaven. They have the commercial against all state, the good hands people. Well, spiritually speaking, you can't be in two better hands than the hands of God the Father and God the Son and their promise to keep us through every obstacle in this life and to one day deliver us into the glory of heaven. And who better to speak of God's power to keep us through all of the ups and downs of life, all of the victories of life, all of the valleys of life, all of the failures in life, than Peter, who is the author of the book that we're reading right now. 
So many flubs, so many failures, so many wrong things that he said, such pride and such arrogance and so boastful and self-promoting, and he denies Jesus three times. And yet the day comes for him to leave the world and then to enter into heaven by way of a martyr's death, even as Jesus told him he would be crucified for his perseverance and his faith in Jesus. And at that moment of his crucifixion, not feeling himself worthy to die in the same position as his Savior, he requested to be crucified upside down. Peter's whole life was a witness to God's promise in this regard, that because of our faith in a risen Jesus, he will give us the power to persevere, to keep on keeping on all the way through this life and into the one to come. As Christians, each and every one of our lives are a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ by virtue of the miracle of our spiritual birth, by virtue of the fact that we possess a living hope, and by virtue of our perseverance, by virtue of the fact that we keep on keeping on against all odds. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Everything I've described this morning is more real than the chair you're sitting in. All of it and more is available to you this morning by simply putting your trust in your faith in the only Savior who is qualified to provide you with the forgiveness of your sins. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to answer your questions and to pray with you to begin the relationship with God, a relationship that I have just begun to scratch the surface concerning and describing to you this morning. And it's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. God loves you. And whether you believe in him or not, he made you. He made you. You know how you can know he made you? Because in your life, until you give your life to Christ and put your faith in him, you will always have this sense within you. There must be something more to life than I have experienced. I don't care if you travel to every continent in the world. I don't care if you travel to every country in the world. You see the ancient wonders of the world, the unimaginable wonders that man has created today to go to see the marvel of the greatest cities within the world. I don't care how many of the greatest meals you've eaten at Michelin star restaurants or what experiences that you've had in life 
All of those things rolled together in a thousand lifetimes independent of Christ. You'll still come to the end of all of it and say, there must be something more to life. I'm still on the search. I've got to go to a better restaurant. I've got to go to a better amusement park. I've got to get a better home. I've got to get a better car. I've got to go on a better vacation. And the whole thing goes on and you don't even realize you're in the middle of a spiritual search that cannot be satisfied in the physical realm realm but you're trying to satisfy it in the physical realm and the reason that you feel even if you just take five seconds to let yourself feel it in the frenzy of the activity of our culture the reason you feel that there must be something more to life than what i've experienced is until you give your life to christ there is something more to life than you've experienced And it is the most important thing in life. And you feel that emptiness because you've been created for relationship with God by your Creator. And that relationship with Him, the God who made you and knows you and loves you, is available to you to begin today. And then all of this begins to unfold in all of its glory, not as the words in a sermon, but it becomes your daily experience. And God would love to do that for you today. These men and women will help you this morning if you'd like to do so. I'd like the worship team to come forward right now as we prepare to close in a song. And I'd like all of us to stand as we dismiss.